Actually, it was tough to come back because I've been living on the beach for the last uh, two years, but uh, oh well. You know, it's, it's, it, it is nice to be back in, in some ways. Um, I want to start off just by, uh, by reading uh, a letter to you. It's kind of a sort of a, a, jocular, a jocular letter from a, uh, a boy who's writing to his mum. Uh, the boy's at camp and he wants to assure his mother that everything is, is okay. And it goes like this. Dear mum, our scoutmaster told us to write to our parents in case you saw the flood on TV and worried. We're okay. Only one of our tents and two sleeping bags got washed away. Luckily, none of us drowned because we were all up on the mountain looking for Jack when it happened. Oh yes, please tell Jack's mother and tell, him that, uh, tell her that he is okay. He can't ride because of the cast. I got to ride in one of the search and rescue jeeps. It was neat. We never would have found him in the dark if it hadn't have been for the lightning. <laughs> Scoutmaster Webb got mad at Jack for going on a hike alone without telling anyone. Jack said he did tell him, but it was during the fire, so he probably didn't hear him. Do you know that if you put a gas can on fire, the gas can will blow up? Well, the wet wood still didn't burn, but another one of our tents did. Also, some of our clothes. John is going to look really weird until his hair grows back. <laughs> we will be home on Saturday if uh, Scoutmaster Webb gets the car fixed. It wasn't his fault about the accident. The brakes worked okay when we left. Scoutmaster Webb said, that, well, with a car like that, you have to expect something to break down. That's probably why he can't get insurance on it. Well, we think it's a great car. He, he doesn't care if we get it dirty, and if it's hot, sometimes he, he lets us uh, ride on the tailgate. It gets pretty hot with ten people in the car. Scoutmaster Webb, it, it, you know, he's awesome. Uh, don't worry, he's a good driver. In fact, he is teaching Jeff how to drive, but only lets him drive on mountain roads where there isn't any traffic. All we ever see up there are logging trucks. This morning, all the guys were diving off the rocks and swimming out in the lake. Scoutmaster Webb wouldn't let me because I can't swim and, uh, and Jack was afraid he would sink because of his cast. So he let us take the canoe across the lake instead. It was great. You still can't see some of the trees under the water from the flood. Scoutmaster Webb isn't crabby like some scoutmasters. He didn't even get mad about us not wearing life jackets. He has to spend a lot of time working on the car, so we are trying not to cause him any trouble. Guess what? We've all passed our first aid merit badges. When Dave uh, dove into the lake and cut his arm, we got to see how a tourniquet works. Also, Wade and I threw up. Scoutmaster Webb said it was probably just food poisoning from the leftover chicken. He said that they got sick that way uh, with the food that they ate in prison. <laughs> I'm so glad he got out and became our Scoutmaster. He said he sure figured out how to get things done better while he was doing his time. I have to go now. Uh, we're going into town to mail our letters and, and buy bullets. Don't worry about anything, we're all fine, love Johnny. Well, his mother certainly won't be letting him go to camp the following year. Johnny is kind of a, a bit like uh, a young boy who's kind of gone off track but doesn't even realise it. And we're going to look at, uh, at a man in the Bible who's kind of uh, probably a young guy who's also gone off a little bit track. And uh, the guy's name is Micah, not the prophet Micah that you might be uh, familiar with, but... Uh, the, uh, the other guy, Micah, who we find tucked away uh, in the book of Judges, and I think that we'll find the story uh, fresh and maybe even a little uh, entertaining this morning. So uh, if you want to turn to Judges 17 and 18, uh, Judges chapter 17, um, you can do that or you can just follow it on, on, uh, on the screen with me. Judges 17. 
Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as a priest. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Now, what on earth is, is really going on here? Well, here we have this Israelite, Micah, who steals 111 shekels of silver, uh, 1,100 uh, 1, shekels of silver from his own mother. Now, let me just tell you that that was quite a lot of money back then. Uh, we learn later in the text that that's probably equivalent to 110 years' worth of wages. Now, I heard on, on TV this week that the average... The average wage in England is about £23,000 a year. Uh, now, I don't know if that's true, but if it is, then that would amount to about £2.5 million. So quite a lot uh, of, of money. But at some point in time, he hears his mother utter a curse over this money. And being a rather superstitious fellow, he decides that he better, he better return it to dear old mum. Now, strangely enough, when he admits what he's done, his mother doesn't ground him or take away his allowance she not only drops the curse, but blesses him instead. Oh, well, Micah can't believe his luck. Uh, not only that, but she consecrates some of the silver to the Lord and gives it to her son to make an idol. So Micah steals the money, gives it back, and then gets it back again. Now Micah, his name means who is like God. So he's now broken the eighth commandment by stealing, the fifth commandment by dishonouring his, par- his parent. And now he breaks the second commandment as well by making an idol, which he sets in his own private chapel, and then makes one of his sons a priest. So Micah is not like God by any means. And this is strange, you see, because the real temple that Michael should have been going to is about 10 miles down the road, and that's where the real priest was. But Micah instead decides to make his own little chapel or church in his own house. In those days, Israel did as they saw fit, and they had no king. Reading further, a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living uh, within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the country, in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? Well, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Well, then Micah said with him, live with me and be my father and priest, and and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. Well, the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was, was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. 
Well, things couldn't really be any better for Micah, could they? You see, a real legitimate priest, stated by their law, had to be a Levite. And there he was, just strolling by Micah's house. Micah offers him money, food and clothes, and the priest, looking for a new job, happily takes it. It was too good to be true. So now we have three, three different things. First off, we have a corrupt mother who breaks her promise by holding back some of the silver. You see, she only actually, uh, she only actually dedicates 200 shekels of silver to the Lord instead of the 1,100. Second of all, we have a corrupt idolater, Micah, who has a shrine in his house full of idols. And last but not least, we have a new addition, a corrupt priest willing to, serves, willing to serve in Micah's unholy sanctuary. And to top it all off, now Micah thinks that he will be blessed because he has a Levite priest. Now, just when you think things couldn't get worse, along comes chapter 18. And I'm going to put chapter 18 sort of in my own words. Um, if chapter 17 describes the corruptness on an individual level, chapter 18 describes some of the corruptness on a whole national level. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And so in those days, five spies from the Israelite tribe of the Danites were out trying to find more land that they could take. And on, the tra on their travels, they passed through the hill country of Ephraim and spent the night at, well, Micah's house. In the morning, they recognize a voice. Now, they knew the, the voice wasn't from around these parts because Ephraimites couldn't pronounce the word Shibboleth. Uh, and so they recognize that it's the voice of the Levite priest under Micah's employment. So they find him and they start asking him questions. What are you doing here? Uh, why are you here? Um, who brought you here? And so the Levite told them what Micah had done for them. He said, well... Mike has hired me as his priest, and I live with him, and, and I serve him. From oh, a priest. What luck, they think. Perhaps they'd even heard of uh, the shrine and the idols, too. So then they said to, uh, to the priest, Please inquire, inquire of God whether our journey, our attack, will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. Now, if I was to embark on some sort of battle... I would uh, probably go to the real tabernacle and ask the real high priest uh, whether I had God's blessing or not. But these spies instead deem it wise enough to ask this false priest, who of course gives, gives them the thumbs up. Don't worry, he says. God says you're on a winner. So the five men left and they came to Eliash, where they saw that the people were living in peace, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from any help and had no relationship with anyone else. So when they returned from their reconnaissance mission, um, their brothers asked them, well, how did you find things? Oh, well, we noticed that this land is, is prosperous and it lacks nothing. Also, uh, we shouldn't hesitate to go and take it over. God has put it into our hands. When you get there, you'll find an, unsu an unsuspecting people not ready for anything. God has put it into our hands, and so we should go ahead and take it. So the Danites, this clan, they quickly assemble a, uh, an armed force of about 600 men and set out on their way to Laish. After setting up their camp in the hill country of Ephraim, they come across to Micah's house, which seems to be the centre of the universe at the moment. 
Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish and already once enjoyed Micah's hospitality, they said to their brothers, do you know that one of, their, one of these houses has an ephod and some idols and a cast idol? Now you know what to do, don't you? So they turned in there and went into Micah's house and they find the young Levite priest and they greet him with 600 Danites armed for battle standing outside the gates. The five men who spied out the land, they went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods and the carved idol, while the priest and the 600 men stood at the entrance to the gate, waiting. Well, the priest gets a little bit confused. He says, well, what are you doing? Where are you going with my master's things? They answered him, well, be quiet. Put a sock in it. Don't say anything. In fact, be our priest. Isn't it better you serve a whole tribe than one, than one small household individual? Well, the Bible says, Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, all of the idols, and went along with the Danites. Promotion. And I think it's here that the self-serving character of this priest is exposed. Motivi- motivi- motivated by his position, he would much rather play out a priestly role role for a whole tribe rather than some small town misguided youth. Now with Micah's priest and Micah's idols, the Danites go ahead, sure that they're now going to win this battle with the Lord's approval. Well, when they had left Micah's house and had gone a little distance, poor pathetic Micah comes running up to them and saying, you've, you've taken everything, you've taken my priest, you've taken my idols, what else do I have? It's a little bit like a a small boy asking for his ball back. Well, the Danites argue, don't argue with us, otherwise some hot-tempered man will attack you and you and your family will all die. Kind of an American cowboy and Indians, your money or your life. So the Danite bullies went on their way, leaving Micah empty-handed with nothing. And poor old Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. (laughs) How ironic, the robber has now become the robbed. You know, I guess in a sense, you've got to feel sorry for Micah. You know, he seems like a nice guy. Although maybe his trust in his idols are a little bit misguided. His misunderstanding has perhaps turned him into one of the judges' men behaving badly. You know, the heart is a little bit like an idol factory, isn't it? You know, we erect our own personal shrines and our own personal standards and put our own things ahead of the things that God asks us to arrange. Perhaps things in our lives seem to be going fine and we're doing okay. You know, installing our own false priests or our own ideas excuse our actions. I don't know how it is for you, but I often find that my heart is, is very deceitful. It tricks me into believing things that are false. You know, the Bible says really that anything we worship before God is, is described as an idol. And it's not necessarily that, that we, we bow down to these idols or lay ourselves prostrate in front of them. But it's anything that we prioritize first in our lives. But often, like Micah, we would rather place our trust in something else, something more tangible, something that we can see. What are you bowing to? Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's some sort of relationship. Maybe it's success or or your career. Maybe you're sacrificing family time because of your work. Maybe it's too much time in front of the TV or the computer. 
perhaps you're compromising your principles to kind of just fit in because everyone else seems different. Maybe you aren't doing any of those things but are just kind of leaving God out of your lives because you don't really want him in it. You know, Jesus is an irritant to my life. I I often think that Jesus would be a really annoying person to hang out with because he'd always be right. He'd always appear self-righteous. He'd always be too good. Jesus is meant to be that irritant in your life because Jesus is the person who sets your life straight. You know, I find that even my own personal sin can become my idol. I put my sins before my relationship with God. Is it possible that sometimes we're so far off track like Micah that we don't even realise it? And it's not as though we wake up one morning suddenly thinking, oh, I've decided to kind of leave God at the side. And we wake up years later and think, you know, I used to be so close to the Lord, but now I just feel so distant. Well, the Danites, they took what Micah had and his priests and, 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 his, in, uh, and his idols and they went on to Laish, this peaceful and unsuspecting city, and they attacked it with the sword, killed all the women, all the children, all the men, and burnt the city down. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no other allies. So the Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. And they called it Dan, which means judge. The genocide that took place there is reminiscent somewhat of what we have seen in the past as we flick on the TV, watch the news, read about in history. And these were supposedly the people of God. See, this event should never have taken place. Rather than, than waiting on God to give them the land that God had already promised them, they took the matter into their own hands. They made no peace terms. They just attacked an unprotected city and surprised them. Somewhat reminiscent, perhaps, of, the, of Kuwait before the armed might of Saddam Hussein. Reminds of, of the, uh, the attempted ethnic cleansing in Rwanda, perhaps. Can you feel the, the author's shame as he writes these words? And this is where the author inserts an exquisite twist in the text. You see, the whole time the author has known who this Levite priest is. But he hasn't spilled the beans, so to speak, yet. Now, to us, it may not seem like a big deal, but to Israelites reading this text, they are shocked when they learn who the priest is. The Bible reads this. Judges 18, verse 30. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. Now, some of your Bibles might not say Moses. They might say Manasseh. But Manasseh, in Hebrew, has a very similar spelling to Moses. And so it seems likely to me that some Jewish translators were so embarrassed by the fact that this priest was related to Moses that they tried to cover it up by adding an extra letter and making the word read Manasseh. So it seems that the grandson of Moses was this corrupt Levite priest How far Israel had slipped from God in just two generations. You know, the world isn't really too much different now. Nations are still at war because of greed and power. People of importance who should know better are are corrupt and abuse their power. 
And so the question that hangs in my mind is, where will we be in two generations? Where will your sons and daughters be in two generations? Where will the nation of Britain be in two generations' time? In fact, the Bible goes on to say that really uh, their time is not so different from our time, even though we, we might think it is. And uh, in Second Timothy, uh, we read this. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Does that remind you of, of the time that we're living in today? The last century has seen some of the most horrific things that have ever happened. Where will we be in 50 years' time? The images that flash in front of our TV-shaped eye, eyes have desensitized us to most, to most atrocities. Where are we heading? The Bible says things will only get worse before they will ever get better. The Danites continued to use my, the idols that Micah had made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. You know, our hearts desperately try to hang on to the idols and the ideas that we've created and hung on to for so long. In those days, Israel had no king. And so the challenge, I guess, in the passage is simply this. Who is your king? Do you live your life as you please? Do you, do you strongly identify with Micah in this passage? Someone who's kind of gone off track a little bit, but maybe hasn't really realised it. Or maybe even the priest. Both so far from God that they, that they don't realise the state they're in. One, an idolater worshipping whatever came his way. Or the other, driven by success that he's blinded to the truth, staring him in the face. The rivers of history flow with blood. In fact, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And so the author seems to push the solution onto our, onto our laps. He says that we need some sort of a king, not just any king, but a king who is above and, and beyond, a king who stands outside of this world. A king who is superior, a king who has never been seen in the pages of history on this earth. A king who knows justice and will put things right. A noble, upright and loving king. No human king could ever deliver us from ourselves. All hope lies in a different sort of king. And so the question remains, who is your king? Maybe there are some of you here who haven't decided yet who your king is. Or maybe you're in the process of, of deciding whether Jesus is someone you want to take seriously. Whether Jesus is someone that you really want to be a part of your life. And Jesus will be an irritant. Jesus will try and set you on paths that are straighter. So the author says, well, who is your king? Because he suggests that the only king who will save you from yourself uh, is Jesus. So I'd just like to close uh, with, a quick, uh, with a quick word of prayer. Our fathers, we consider the story of, of, of Micah and just all that goes on there and how far they had drifted in just a short period of time. I pray, Lord, that in our own hearts that we give up the idols and, and we give up the sin, that, the sin that we so much love and that we look to, towards you as, uh, as our king.
not just the king of the universe, uh, but as, as a king of our lives. Because, because the answer for the world and for ourselves is in the name and the person of Jesus. And so we pray these things in, in his name. Amen.